Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I'm Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. Today we're covering three psalms here on day 348, Psalms 51, 52, and 53. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is a gift and a blessing to us, a treasure, as it reveals your heart to us, as it calls us to yourself, shows us yourself. Father, thank you for loving us, for unfailingly being our God and Father, faithful and true. As we spend time in these psalms today, show us what it means to repent of sin, to trust in your unfailing love, and to know that you are God. And Father, lead us in faith and obedience for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalms 51, 52, and 53. We'll take these one at a time. Psalm 51 is written to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That is Psalm 51. It is a great psalm of repentance. It really is perhaps the single best model for repentance given to us in the Psalms for how we should repent of our sin. David has been confronted 
by Nathan the prophet for a great and grievous sin against the Lord. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has arranged to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed. And he has attempted to cover it up and keep it quiet for the better part of a year. And Nathan the prophet confronts him. And when he is confronted, David immediately confesses and repents. Here we don't see David making excuses, blaming others, minimizing his sin, qualifying his repentance, or any of those things that our flesh might be tempted to do when we know we should repent, but we don't really want to. And so we see David here fully and freely and unreservedly repenting. And he's asking God for mercy. Mercy is when God withholds from us the wrath and curse that is due to us for our sin. And his plea is on the basis of God's steadfast love and God's abundant mercy. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God. According to my good deeds, I slayed Goliath and I led your people and I'm the great psalm singer of Israel. David's hope for mercy is not rooted in himself, in his accomplishments, in his character, in his past. Nothing. It is according to God's steadfast love and according to God's abundant mercy. That he asks for God to have mercy on him and to blot out his transgression and to wash him thoroughly and cleanse him. We need to have punishment withheld from us and we need to be forgiven and we need to be cleansed. When we are in sin, we are guilty of breaking God's law and thus we deserve wrath and curse from God eternally. But we're also filthy, dirty, defiled. So we need cleansing. And so that's what he asked for, for mercy, for cleansing. And again, he says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to make excuses for it. Verse 4 is interesting because he says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you might think, well, he sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against Bathsheba by drawing her away from her husband. He sinned against the nation of Israel by being an unfaithful king. Yes, and I don't know that David's denying any of that, but he knows the key principal issue is that all sin is first and foremost and most importantly against God. When we sin, however we sin and whoever is involved in our sin, we have sinned first and foremost against the Lord. And the Lord is the one who judges. And because of our sin, God is justified when he judges us. He's blameless when he judges us. And David understands that his sin runs deeper than a a mere act in the heat of the moment. He doesn't try to pretend that he's basically a good person who does what is right, but who fell in this moment. No, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, verse 5. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's saying, I have been sinful in my heart from the moment of my conception and my birth. I have a sinful nature. And yet God delights in truth in the inward being. And so 
if our sinful nature from birth is going to be transformed, God's going to have to do it. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a little scrubby uh, brush-like plant that would grow in the walls and kind of weed, but they would use it to dip it in the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle that on the worshipers. And so he's saying, I need the blood of the sacrifice. And ultimately, he knows that he needs not any sacrifice that he can give, but the sacrifice that God alone can give. Because he says in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So even though in verse 7 he says, purge me with hyssop, he knows it cannot be any hyssop that comes from being dipped in the blood of any sacrifice he brings. He needs something greater. And ultimately, of course, what he needs is the blood of Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who's the only one who can wash us so that we are whiter than snow. But not only does he need to be cleansed, he also needs a clean heart and a right spirit. He also needs God's favor upon him, and he needs God to to restore the joy of his salvation. When we sin, we break off our fellowship with God, we, we wander away from the intimacy that we have with God, we need God to draw us back. We need God to renew us, to restore us, to cleanse us, to recreate us, and to give us that which he alone can give, which is healing and restoration. And then he says, if God will do this, verse 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says in verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So David is not only concerned for himself, he wants to be restored, forgiven, cleansed, healed, renewed, so that he can speak the truth of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. And here we are, 3,000 years later, benefiting from the work that God did in David's heart, and we are taught about the ways of God. We are shown how to confess and how to repent and how to be restored through this psalm. David's concern is that he sinned against the Lord, but his concern is not for himself only, but for the whole people of God. And we see this again in the last section of this psalm, where he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. He does know that as the leader of the people, his sin does have consequences for the nation, and he wants to see the nation blessed and restored spiritual leaders, when we sin, we bring consequences not only for our lives and our families, but also for the churches that we lead and for the people of God. And so our, our, our concern should be for the people of God when we sin. Psalm 52 is written to the choir master, and it's a maskil of David, which means it's a teaching psalm, a psalm of instruction. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So here is a situation where David is not in sin, but David is being sinned against. He's being, uh, he's being ratted out by Doeg the Edomite. This is a time when he's fleeing from Saul and he goes to the house of Ahimelech. He goes to the high priest and he gets assistance. He gets bread 
for his men and he gets the sword of Goliath um, so that he can go out uh, and continue to, to, to be sustained. Now, Ahimelech doesn't know that he's fleeing from King Saul. He thinks he's in the king's service. But Doeg the Edomite is there and he tells Saul that David is in the house of Ahimelech. And so David has been betrayed, but also the, he knows that the high priest and the priestly family has been betrayed. And so this this little line from Doeg the Edomite is actually quite, quite destructive as it's going to lead to the death of a lot of priests and their families because Doeg says basically the priests are conspiring to side with David against Saul. So this is what David writes. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. In Psalm 51, we saw David sinning and repenting in a very God-centered way, in a way that was finding his hope in the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God. Now here David is being sinned against. He's not the one doing the sinning, but he's the one being sinned against. And still, he finds his hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. Right there in verse 1, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. This phrase, steadfast love in ESV, other translations might render it as loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which is my favorite Hebrew word. It's just a wonderful word that communicates the covenantal commitment of God to his people to love us in ways that we don't deserve, in ways that reflect the goodness of God more so than the goodness of his people and his absolute commitment to be on our side and to be for us and for our good. It, it reflects God's mercy and forgiveness, but it also reflects God's justice and God's keeping. It's just a rich, rich word. And if you look, read the Psalms and just do a quick scan for the phrase steadfast love in the ESV or loving kindness uh, in the King James or New King James, you'll, you'll see this word used in most Psalms. Uh, most of the Psalms have this word because it really is the foundational hope uh, of our relationship with God. So when we are sinned against, it is okay to acknowledge that we're being sinned against. It's perfectly right 
to call evil evil, to say you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. And it's okay to say God will deal with you. God will break you down forever. And it's okay to even say God's going to use you as an example of what it looks like if someone's not going to make God his refuge. This is what we call an imprecatory psalm or where where you're praying to God or speaking about God for the downfall of your enemies. Now, we should pray for the salvation of those who do not know the Lord. And we should remember from from Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness under Satan's dominion. So we should keep that in mind. But it's okay to call spade a spade, to say that kind of talk from this person is evil and it's deadly and it's poisonous and it shows someone who doesn't trust in the Lord, but is trusting in himself. But what I love is this last stanza. Despite the fact that he's being sinned against and slandered, despite the fact that he's being told on behind his back, David is content to be safe in the presence of God, no matter where he is. He's on the run. He's hiding. He's running. But he says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Up at Longwood Gardens uh, in Pennsylvania, there is a, a great greenhouse that I love to walk through and see the plants. And there's one room in particular where there is this green olive tree inside this greenhouse. And there's a bench right across from it. I love just sitting down there. And Beth knows whenever we go there, I'm going to sit down on that bench and I'm going to read Psalm 52, verse 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. It's a reminder to me that I find peace and contentment and security and salvation in God and in his steadfast love, no matter what is going on in my life. Let's go to Psalm 53. This is written to the choir master, according to Mahalath, which is probably the musical tune that it is set to. And it is a masculine of David. And it is, it is almost identical to Psalm 14. And much of the language from this is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. So when God repeats something three times in scripture, it's something to pay close attention to. But Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are like the same words almost exactly. And they're probably two different uh, musical versions of the same uh, hymn that was sung in Israel. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. 
Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. How do we live in the midst of a world where there are so many foolish people denying God's existence, God's reality, God's justice, God's providential reign over the world? So many people saying, oh, there is no God. Well, we need to remember that no matter what the world says about God, God looks down from heaven and he sees all. And he judges those who deny and reject him. And he blesses and keeps those whose hearts belong to him by grace. We need to remember that. We need to remember that what is the ultimate determiner of reality is not what our culture says, not what the media says, but it's what God says and what God does. And that is the eternal perspective that we need to have. Together, Psalms 51, 52, and 53, they teach us how do we respond when we have sinned and we feel that conviction, that weight of sin of having just blown it. Psalm 52, how do, we, how do we respond when we've been sinned against? In Psalm 53, how do we live in the midst of a culture that is increasingly denying God and his existence and reality of God's creation and providence? And the answer for all of them is really the same. And that is, look to the Lord. Ground yourself in the Lord. Anchor yourself in the Lord. Center yourself in the Lord. His steadfast love, his abundant mercy his protection, his peace, his salvation will be for us. Whether we have sinned and need forgiveness or been sinned against and need protection or we're just discouraged by the general state of our culture and we need a reality check and a perspective check. So let's go to the Lord now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we sin, you have abundant mercy to forgive our sin. We thank you that your steadfast love never fails and never changes. We thank you that you are always with us to protect us and defend us when we are attacked. And we thank you that you are the ultimate reality in the universe, not what people say about you, but who you truly are. Remind us of these things day by day, that when we sin, we might quickly go to you, that when we are sinned against, we might quickly trust you. And when we are discouraged by the state of our culture, we might remember that you are the eternal unchanging one. Nothing catches you by surprise and nothing shakes you out of your place. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me for Psalms 51, 52, and 53. I know it's a little bit longer devotional today. Hey, we got to cover three Psalms. And so I hope that was a blessing to you. We will be back in the book of Judges tomorrow. Have a blessed day in the Lord.